Please turn to Psalm 95. That would be Psalm 95. Everybody stare at them as they walk in. (laughs) I started about a minute early, so it's okay. Psalm 95. Uh, This is is where we're going to make our home today. Though we'll read, we'll need to read some things to, to give us a little bit of context. So I'm going to read Psalm 95. It's a short psalm. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, As on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work, for 40 years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Psalm 95. We'll take this in a few pieces. And we'll figure out where some of these events came from, because clearly we're talking about something that happened before the psalm itself. Uh, Let's start with verses 1 through 5. I want you to read it. And uh, the question I want you to think about is, what is the psalmist praising God for? I'll give you a minute to read through the first, or not quite that long. To read through the first five verses. Why is God praiseworthy? Okay, why is why is God praiseworthy? He's creator and savior. Okay, savior in what sense? It's the rock of our salvation. So the rock of our salvation. What does that mean? It's the foundation of our salvation. Okay, rock something hard, something uh, potentially immovable, right? Okay. And he is creator, and the sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Now it also says, right, uh, in his hand are the depths of the earth, and the heights of the mountains are his also. So God owns the depths of the earth and the mountains, but since we're at neither, God does not own right here. Right? No? 
Is that the wrong way to read that? All right. Well, then how do we read that rightly? Yeah, yeah. He he mentioned the lowest part and the top part with the clear implication. He, if he's there and he owns that, and he's, he owns, then he's going to own what's in the middle. All right. And so this is. This is a poetic device, all right? So, God has created everything. God owns everything all the way from the depths of the earth and to the heights of the mountains, all right? Okay. And what should we do, according to the psalmist? Make a joyful noise. We should make a joyful noise. Let us sing to the Lord, in verse 1. Let us make a joyful noise, verse 1. What else? We should we should come with thanksgiving, right? We should be thankful. I mean, if God created the land and the sea, uh, you only exist because God created the land and the sea, right? Because without the land and the sea, you would not be here. You should absolutely give thanksgiving, not just for that though, but also because God is our rock of salvation. Okay, verse six. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand. Okay, who's God the God of? God is our God. Is God other people's gods? Is God their God too? Verse 3 says he is. He's above all gods. Mm-hmm. So if there's only truly one God that created heaven and earth, and then that one God created all of the other spiritual beings. Alright? So therefore, He's the greatest God, and therefore, He's the only true God, so He is totally everyone's God. So that's certainly true. But that's not what verse 7 is specifically talking about. The first verses 1 through 6, clearly, that's the implication. There's one God, He has created all things, and He's above all the other little G gods. Alright? Verse 7 is what? Alright? He's our He's our God. Alright? Our God. Notice, and this this is very common, the, the emphasis is on the collective. Alright? We, as Americans, are very individualistic, all right? And truly, to have a relationship with God is an individual thing. We believe this, all right? An individual must repent on an individual level. You cannot repent for your children. However, He is our God, because we were never meant to be individuals, all right? The community of faith is always meant to be a community, Right. No lone no lone Christians. Right. Yeah. Isn't there an emphasis though a lot of times on he's our God and he's not your God? Mm-hmm. Like so So it is us as a group, but it's also you guys are not part of our Us in distinction. Absolutely. Yes. There's both elements are here. There's God as creator and there's God as our God. As opposed to their God. So yes, both are certainly there. Right? There's a possessiveness, possessiveness there. He's our God as opposed to their God. And we are the sheep of His pasture. Meaning there are, there's other animals out there. Right? But we are the sheep. He's our shepherd. No goats. Yeah. No goats. There's just sheep in this one. Yeah, yeah. 
What's that? There is, right? He is our God, and there's, you know, pride not in a bad way. You know, pride in a good way. Thankfulness in a good way. He is our God. We should be thankful that we worship the God that made heaven and earth, as opposed to just a God that can do things but can't do all that. So there is that jealousy in in a good way. Then, as you probably noticed, there's kind of a switch. And it happens at the very last stanza of verse 7. Now, I don't know why the versification put it there. Uh, At least the ESV clearly groups that last stanza with the following verses. Today, if you hear his voice. Does anybody have any translation that groups it logically with the previous? You do? We are the sheep of his hand today if you hear his voice. All right? So in that case, the meaning would, would be more like, if you're listening to his voice, all right, then you are the sheep. All right? You are the sheep within his, within his pasture. The ESV, and I think probably more people, and as we'll, I'm going to wait on that. Somebody else does. Um, groups this with what comes later, which is going to be probably one thing that makes... I'm just going to leave that totally vague for about 20 minutes, and then we'll see it. Somebody else groups this particular last stanza with what comes after. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah and as on the day at Massa in the wilderness. Do we know what event this is? Anybody remember Meribah and Massa? It's not... You know, such a major event is like the flood. Close. This is where they griped about no water. So let's turn to Exodus chapter 17. And uh, we will come back here, so you know, book, bookmark yourself there. Exodus 17. It's possible that they griped about food here. It's very possible. The focus here, though, is on water. Exodus 17. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, 
and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? And so Massa and Meribah mean um, testing and quarreling. And so they just... They called it that because that's what they were doing. So Masa and Meribah, they were testing God. All right, Not a good way of testing God, a bad way of testing God. There's, there's okay ways of testing the Lord, all right? especially when he invites it. But generally speaking, this is an unfaithful testing of the Lord. We don't believe in Yahweh, who said he was... That, that's what he said his name was when he take us, took us out of Egypt. We don't believe him. We think you're going to kill us. All right, that's that is an unfaithful, inappropriate testing and quarreling. All right, quarreling with with whom? Well, they're quarreling with the the prophet. Right, they're quarreling with the one that Yahweh said, "This is my this is my dude." All right, and they quarreled with him. So they are testing Yahweh, and they are quarreling with him, and therefore quarreling uh, quarreling with Moses, and therefore quarreling with God Himself. So Masa and Meribah. Uh, now also go to Numbers 20. And the people of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh. And Miriam died there and was buried there. Now there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness? that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water, so you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out and and came out abundantly. And the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord. And through them he showed himself holy. All right. 
they're, both cases are coming out of the wilderness of Sin slash Zin. Both ca- places we are bringing water out of a rock. Both places are called Meribah, though Masa is, as a name is not mentioned here. Yes, Lydia? Yes, I think he's referring at that point in the psalm to uh, the various pagan deities. Okay. Yes. Well, uh, I have another question. Mm-hmm. While, while, the, uh, while they were in Egypt, they were enslaved, you think some of them uh, like, figured out about their gods and believed in their gods more, and that's what I uh, don't know, but I would imagine that is the case for some. I would definitely imagine that, yeah. Though, it's hard to tell. Now, with the people, though, given their history coming out of the, the out of Egypt, right? Um, there was lots of issues with faith amongst the people throughout that whole time, all right? Um, the basic assumption would be from that, for me, would be, They actually, a lot of them lacked faith, generally speaking. And so I would not be at all surprised, given that they lacked faith in their God, that many of them continued to believe in the gods of the Egyptians. Not surprising to me at all. I would actually be very surprised if that wasn't the case. But I didn't really quite call it out here, at least. Yeah. Um, Just quickly. Little G God, Lydia, sometimes you'll hear him say little G God, which are not gods. They're not creating, they're not the God of the harvest or the God. Those don't actually exist. God is God. But they're spiritual beings, and they do have power. And so the Bible calls them little G, like not God, but definitely not like humans. They're, they're powerful spiritual beings. Some are good, some are evil, like good angels, evil demons. You could refer to them as little G gods. Not like in Greek mythology, though, where there's you know dozens of gods all in a council together in heaven. Not that way. Yeah. Well said. Now, if you would turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. So, Deuteronomy chapter 6. I chose this text because we have... Not just the record of the events of Massa and Meribah, but we also have some reflection here about this. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 6, if we start, for example, in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. 
And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test, as you tested him at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies before you, as the Lord has promised." And so, when you've got instruction here in Deuteronomy, and what's he doing? He's saying, okay, you are to love the Lord with all your strength and your soul and your might, and you are to talk about the Lord, but you are not to test the Lord. Right? Now, the Israelites frequently tested the Lord, right? Oh, we're going to die of starvation. Okay, manna, right? They frequently sinned and they frequently tested the Lord. But it's specifically the Masa, the Meribah incident that he points out here. He's like, don't be like that. All right? Don't show a complete lack of faith in what's going on. All right? Don't be like that. And so Deuteronomy reflects on this. And I think ultimately, and we can turn now back to, um, back to the psalm, You've got now the psalmist reflecting on this same event. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah and on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. You know, the emphasis here is don't, don't right now, when, and now we are, we are a great deal of time later, right? Don't right now put the Lord to the test. Those people had seen the Lord work, all right, in miraculous ways so many times, yet they still tested the Lord. Don't be like them, all right? They put the Lord to the proof, yet they had, as it says here, they had seen my work. If you'd seen the work, there's no reason to put him to the proof, all right? So here we have the psalmist reflecting on the same event, all right? For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. 
Okay, so Massa, Meribah, testing the Lord, right? Testing the Lord here being another way of saying not trusting the Lord. Saying, you said you were going to do something and you're not doing it. Right? That's specifically what we're talking about here. The next thing I want to talk about is rest. And that would be, once again, verses 10 through 11. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, there are people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. What's the significance, anyone, of the 40 years? What is he talking about? 40 years in the wilderness, right? 40 years in the wilderness. So let's turn to um, Numbers again, this time, Numbers 14. Once again, keep a bookmark. Coming back. Numbers chapter 14, we will read uh, verses 20 through 25. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give their fathers. And none of those who despised me shall see it, but my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully. I will bring into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. Now since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. And so this is a discussion of the, of the, the 40 years. All right? Uh, and this is happening right after all right, the people rebelled. Uh, and if you look in like verse uh, chapter 14, uh, like the people rebel, at the beginning of that is the subject. If you look to chapter 13, the uh, subtitle is the spies sent into Canaan, right? And so we've actually had a lot of disbelief up through this point, but now they get to Canaan, they're about to go in. You know the story, I imagine. They send the, the spies into the land, the spies come back, and most of them say, we can't do this. They're huge. Those guys are huge and they will kill us. And so this is God's response. I said I would bring you in the land. You've shown disbelief. Therefore, all of you are going to die who disbelieved. All right. And how did he do this? He kept them in the wilderness for 40 years. That generation died off, except Joshua and Caleb. Right. So that's the story there. It is a lot of funerals. Uh, now, if you would, turn to um, Deuteronomy 12. The context here is that God is going to establish a chosen, a chosen place of worship in the land. They've not yet gone into the land. This is Deuteronomy. All right. Uh, but that will be the case, that there will be a chosen place for uh, sacrifice and such. Starting in verse 8 of Deuteronomy 12. 
you shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes. For you have not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contributions that you present, and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male servants and your female servants, and the Levite that is within your towns, since he has no portion or inheritance with you. Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see, but at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes. And there you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I am commanding you. Now, what which tribe ended up having the the place where they would be giving their burnt offerings. Where where, where is Jerusalem? Whose tribe? Hmm? Tribe of Judah. All right. Doesn't specify it right there, but that's ultimately where it's going to be. Okay. Now, once again, go back to verse. Um, Verse 10, And when you go over to the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, and then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I commanded you. Okay, with all that in mind, going back to Psalm 95. For 40 years... I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. All right, so here's your question. What is rest? Not for you, for him. Whoever wrote this. What is rest? What's that? Lack of conflict from surrounding enemies. From surrounding enemies. And what do you base that on? Deuteronomy 12, 10. Okay. Yeah, that's certainly a very important element, right? Lack of conflict from surrounding enemies. All right? Major part of it. Because you don't have much rest if, you know, if um, Babylon's around the walls besieging your city. Not a particularly restful time, right? What's the other component to it? Right, the promised land. It's being in the land, but that is not sufficient. All right? This is clearly the Deuteronomic interpretation of rest. Being in the land, but that is not sufficient. Being in the land, and then being without strife from external enemies. That is for the Deuteronomist, all right? That is rest. Is that the case here for the psalmist? Is this the rest that Hebrews talks about? Could be. Could be. But from the perception of the psalmist, could be. From, from, from the perception of the psalmist, what is rest? 
Does he define what rest is here? So if you go through contextually, all right, so at this point we're, we're looking earlier, all right, uh, this means, well, prerequisites, all right, obviously you're not testing God if we think about 8 and 9. You're not testing God in unbelief, all right, because that will keep you out of rest. So therefore, what is ultimately going to be rest? Well, is faithfulness going to be rest? I don't think so. I think ultimately we have to depend on Deuteronomy. All right? Faithfulness will lead to rest for them. Right? Because faithfulness in Deuteronomy is if you are faithful, then you will dwell in the land and you will not be disturbed by your enemies. All right? you, will, you, will, you will defeat them. All right? And one of, some of the activities of rest are certainly here in 95. If you are in a state of rest, you are in the land and you are free from your enemies, and you're free from those trying to kill you, then you should absolutely be full of praise, and you should be absolutely thanking God. So I think ultimately what we have to do here, because he doesn't say, you shall not enter my rest. Now let me define what rest means, right? He doesn't, he doesn't quite do that. Ultimately, you've got this, the psalmist in, in Psalm 95 at the beginning, essentially having a godly attitude. This is how we are supposed to live. And it is completely consistent with what was considered good in Deuteronomy. It's having faith in God all right, and giving thanks to God, which is exactly what God wants you to do according to the law. So in Psalm 95, I think you've got that basic idea. This is not the only psalm, though, that we can use to see how this works. All right. So, if you would turn to Psalm seventy-eight, now Psalm seventy-eight is considerably longer. Uh, I definitely recommend that you go back and read the whole thing, but we don't have time. Um, it, this talks about actually, Masa and Meribah, but it doesn't mention it by name. So uh, you've got it at the beginning. I'll just read the first few verses. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from old, things that you have heard and known that our fathers have told us. So we're going back in history. We will not hide them from their children but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done, which, going back to Deuteronomy, is exactly what God told them to do. Keep in mind all the things that I've commanded you. Keep them in front of your face, on your hands. All right? You've got, in this psalm, various sequences of sin. All right? Where the people have rebelled against God, all right? And um, this ultimately goes through the entire psalm. So the emphasis is very much on people's rebellion, just like we've discussed at Masa and Meribah, but also God's faithfulness in all of this. Let's jump to one of those, which would be verse 17. 
They, yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so that the water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? All right, so this is clearly a reference not just to the providing of food like manna, but also to the rock, right, of water coming out. And this was not done in faith, as is clearly the case here, yet they still still sinned more against him. If you look at verse 37, their heart was not steadfast toward him, they were not faithful to his covenant, yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power on the day when he redeemed them from the foe, when he performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the fields of Zoan. And that continues on until I think you've got a good break around verse 55. Okay? You've got really in there a pretty good narrative of Exodus to essentially the kingdom. All right? The kingdom not under David or even under Solomon, but right after it. Because when you get to 56, we now have a split kingdom, which at least is going to help us narrow down what the date of this is. So if you have a split kingdom, right, this is not a super old psalm. This is clearly something that is at least post-David. And it says it is a masculine of Asaph. So whoever Asaph is, he is clearly post-David, as we shall see. Verse 56, Yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God, and did not keep his testimonies, but turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers. They twisted like a deceitful bow, for they provoked him to anger with their high places. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. When God heard, he was full of wrath, and he utterly rejected Israel. There, at that point, we know clearly, all right, well... I guess we really know verses after. We're talking about here, not the southern kingdom, but the northern kingdom of Israel. Continuing on. For he forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind, and delivered his power to captivity, his glory to the hand of the foe. He gave his people over to the sword and vented his wrath on his heritage. This is talking about what? What event? Could be judges, but not really. This is this is definitely later than that. At what point? Who? At what point was the northern kingdom put to the sword? Seven hundreds, right? BC. Very important, right? The Assyrians, the Assyrians, right? The Assyrian invasion. This is. It'll become even more clear that this is cl- this is clearly this. The Assyrians come in as God's weapon. All right, to put the northern the people in the north to to the sword. One sec. Thanks. I didn't get that. Could you try again? No. Siri's always listening. Siri's always listening. 
verse 62. He gave his people over to the sword and vented his wrath on his heritage. Fire devoured their young men, and their young women had no marriage song. Their priests fell by the sword, and their widows made no lamentation. Then the Lord awoke as from sleep, like a strong man shouting because of wine, and he puts his adversaries to rout. He put them to everlasting shame. He rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah. That very clearly gives us a time frame, all right? Because we have a contrast between Ephraim slash Israel slash Joseph and Judah. It's only a contrast that makes sense based on the divided kingdom and post-Assyrian invasion in 722. He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he has founded forever. He chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. Question, who is at a state of rest and who is not in this psalm here at the end? Leveraging what we've talked about in terms of rest before. Who is at rest and who is not? Judah is what? At rest or is not at rest? At rest. Now, Assyria, did they attack Judah? They did. They almost conquered Judah, but God didn't let them. After that, Judah was free. Judah was preserved from their enemies. They were, in fact, at rest. The northern kingdom, at rest or not? Clearly not. They're not in the land, A, because many of them were taken out. Right? That's the exile part. And they're also being greatly persecuted by their enemies, the Assyrians. The northern kingdom was not at rest. The southern kingdom was at rest at this particular point, which means this psalm was definitely written after 722. And definitely before 587. Right? And probably even before that, because Babylon was, was a pain to Jerusalem for a couple decades before this. All right? So you've got a rough time frame from when this psalm was done. So, rest. When the psalmist in Psalm 95, which may or may not be from the same time as Psalm 78, unclear, all right? Rest is, I think we can assume, it's probably exactly what they thought of in terms of the Deuteronomic understanding. To be in the land and to be with, with your enemies not persecuting you, not under their thumb, is ultimately to be at rest. All right? Now, as my mother would want to point you, let's go to Hebrews chapter 3. Because she is right. Mothers are always right. Mothers are always right. All right, we are about out of time. This is what I want you to think about for next time. All right. Hebrews chapter 3, the very first paragraph there, is a transition paragraph between the point of uh, we've been going through in Hebrews chapter 2. Verse 7. Let's read a few verses here. You've got, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, 
In verse 7 of Hebrews chapter 3, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. If you look down in verse 15, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. If you look in chapter 4, verse 3, As I swore in my wrath, they will not enter my rest. In verse 5, they shall not enter my rest. In verse 7, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Verse 11, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. This whole section... All right, is it's a Bible study on Psalm 95 given by the author of the book of Hebrews. This whole thing is, here's a section of test, text, we're going to discuss it. He quotes the thing, and then he comes to pieces, one at a time. Let's talk about this piece, talk about this piece, let's repeat that piece again. All right, so he is doing an exposition. And what he's doing, all right, is he is, all right, updating... All right, the Old Testament worldview of what rest is for his Christian audience. Okay? And so we know what the Old Testament view is pretty much, at least from the Psalm, certainly this Psalm, all right, and certainly Deuteronomy. Life in the land, free from your enemies, being prosperous, having cities that you did not build, having vineyards that you did not grow, having cisterns that you did not dig. This is rest. Right? That is not rest to the author of Hebrews. And so we will be discussing what's he doing with that. Okay? So yes, astute observation, Mother. Clearly relevant to what the author of Hebrews has to say. Yes? I don't know. I don't know. I have no idea. We will discuss it next, next Lord's Day. So think about it. Read through that section. All right? Think through the context of the psalm. All right? What we discussed. Understand what is the same and understand what is different. Because some things are clearly the same. All right? If nothing was the same, then he would be lifting it entirely out of context and changing everything. And that is certainly not the case. Right. I think it's interesting he uses the word he cannot enter my rest. That is interesting. And so when our forefathers say that he slept means he died, mm-hmm. he has to do something with death. I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. I can't come back next week to the rest of the story. Any questions or thoughts? Okay. No questions or thoughts? Then we will we will be done. Brother Tim, you please pray for us.